0: The following sermon, entitled Believing in God the Father, was preached on the evening of September eighteenth, two 2022, at Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Redlands, California. If you enjoy listening to our sermons, we encourage you to come worship with us. For more information on upcoming service times and Bible study opportunities, please visit our website at hopeprc.org. Let's open God's word this evening to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 we will read the whole of the chapter and we do so in connection with Lord's Day 9 of the Heidelberg catechism In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth And the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep And the spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness He called night, and the evening and the morning were the first day. And God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters." And God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, and the evening and the morning were the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together unto one place, and let dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the gathering together of the waters called He Sees. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after His kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, and herb yielding seed after His kind, and the tree yielding fruit, whose seed was in itself after His kind. And God saw that it was good, and the evening and the morning were the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the... Lesser light to rule the night, He made the stars also. And God set them in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and the evening and the morning were the fourth day. And God said, let the waters bring forth abundantly, and moving creature." the moving creature that hath life, and fowl that may fly above the earth in the open firmament of heaven. God created great whales and every living creature that moveth, which the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind, and every winged fowl after his kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let fowl multiply in the earth, And the evening and the morning were the fifth day. God said, let the earth bring forth the living creature after His kind, cattle and creeping thing, and beast of the earth after His kind, and it was so. And God made the beast of the earth after His kind, and cattle after their kind, and everything that creepeth upon the earth after His kind. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let us make man in our image and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. God said, Behold, I have given you every herb-bearing seed which is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree in which is the fruit of a tree-yielding seed. To you it shall be for meat, and to every beast of the earth and to every fowl of the air, and to everything that creepeth upon the earth, wherein there is life, I have given every green herb for meat. And it was so. And God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. As far as we read God's Word, it's on the basis of this passage and many others that we have the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 9. Lord's Day 9. Here we have the first article of the Apostles' Creed. What believest thou when thou sayest, I believe in God the Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, that the Eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who of nothing made heaven and earth with all that is in them, who likewise upholds and governs the same by His eternal counsel and providence, is, for the sake of Christ His Son, my God and my Father, on whom I rely so entirely that I have no doubt, but He will provide me with all things necessary for soul and body. And further, that He will make whatever evils He sends upon me in this valley of tears turn out to my advantage, for He is able to do it being Almighty God and willing being a faithful Father." Lord's Day 8, that is the previous Lord's Day of the Heidelberg Catechism, reminded us of the truth of the Trinity. That is, that the one God whom we serve in worship is Father, Son, and Spirit. That is, there are three distinct persons within the Godhead. And in reminding us of that truth, The Catechism, therefore, reminded us that it belongs to the very being of God that He is Father. It's a part of who He is, and that within the Trinity, you have the first person of the Trinity called Father, who eternally begets the second person of the Trinity called Son, and that Son is eternally begotten of the Father. That's true within the Trinity itself. But now our God, in order to reveal Himself to us, reveals His own Trinitarian life in His works, and that includes revealing Himself to us as our Father. So that He's not only Father within Himself as the Triune God, but He's Father in His outgoing works as well. And that in three different senses of the word. At least in three different ways, I should say. First, He's the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Second, He's the Father of creation. And third, He's our Father by adoption. And now it's in Lord's Day 9 that the Catechism explains those ways in which our God is Father in His works outside of Himself, especially it focuses on the second and the third aspects of His work as Father. And that comes out in the Catechism. The answer begins by pointing us to that first sense that the Eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But then it goes on to talk about the fact that he made heaven and earth, that is he's the the father of heaven and earth, and that he he gives life, he gives existence to the creation, and he cares for that creation, even as a father gives life to his Son and cares for his son, but not only is he the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, not only is he the father of creation but he's our Father through adoption, and that he gives us new life, and he takes us into his family, he makes us his children he loves us he fellowships with us and he cares for us that is he does all the things that a father would do for his children and what god is doing in this is revealing himself to us so that we could know, so that we might know him as father because he is in fact father within himself as the triune god So it's those truths that we want to see this evening. Especially the truth of God's creating us and God's adopting us. But we look at those truths with a certain purpose in mind. So that we might recognize that this Father of ours is entirely trustworthy. So that as we go down life's path, so that as we walk in the veil of tears... We rely upon this God. We depend upon this God exactly because of who He is and how He's revealed Himself to us. So this morning we consider Lord's Day 9 using as our theme believing in God the Father. Believing in God the Father. First, we'll look at our Almighty Creator. Second, we'll look at our gracious Father or adoptive Father. And third, at our Trustworthy God. As Christians, we believe in God the Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth. But now, if we're going to understand that statement, we must ask the question, well, who is this Father here? And to answer that question, it's good for us to recognize that when Scripture itself speaks of God as Father, in certain cases, it's talking about the first person of the Trinity in distinction from the Son and the Spirit, whereas in other passages of Scripture, it's referring to the one divine being, that is, the triune God as Father. And we can tell the difference between the passages. When you are reading your Bibles, and you come across the name Father, and that name Father is set in distinction from the Son, or from the Son and the Spirit, within that verse or within the immediate context, then we are to recognize that Father here is talking about the first person of the Trinity when there's a distinction between the three persons. In contrast, when we read the term Father in our Bibles, and it's really talking more about His relationship to the creation, or His relationship to His people, then we are to understand it as referring to the triune God, to the one divine being. An example of the latter would be the Lord's Prayer. And the address, Jesus taught us to pray, our Father which art in heaven. It's the relationship between us His people and God as our Father so that we're praying to the triune God, not just to the first person of the Trinity. The point of all this is that when we read a Father, it can be referring to the first person of the Trinity or to the triune God. But that raises the question then, who then are we talking about here when we confess as Christians, I believe in God the Father, Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth. Well, as we saw last time it's really the triune god that creates it's not just the father though he stands on the foreground in this work but the son and the spirit likewise participated in this work and they did so in a manner that was in harmony with their own distinct personal properties as the different persons of the trinity so it's the triune god who creates And that's really who's on the foreground here. At the same time, we do acknowledge and recognize what we just mentioned in passing, that it is the Father that stands on the foreground in this work. Previous Lord's Day ascribed the work of creation especially to the Father. And it does so in light of His distinct personal properties because a father begets a son. Within the Trinity, the Father eternally begets the Son. Fathers give existence, give life to their Son. They, they love their Son. They care for their Son. And because creation, that work of God, involves giving life and existence to something that did not exist before that, and because it, our God cares for that creation, We rightly recognize that it's the Father who stands on the foreground, that is the first person of the Trinity. This is His work, especially. And we want to look at that work, especially in this first point. We do so by turning to the account that Scripture itself provides for us, namely Genesis chapter 1. And when we look at Genesis chapter 1, we can break it up into three different phases, if you will. Three different parts to the overall creation work and how God created the heavens and the earth that we see today. First, God created matter. That's what we read about in the opening two verses of this chapter. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Verse 1 uses a very important word, a very important verb, when it says, in the beginning God created. And that word is noteworthy because it's only ever used in Scripture with reference to God. That is, man is never once made the subject of this verb to create. Man builds things, he makes things, but he does not create in this sense of the word. Only God creates in this sense of the word because only God is able to create things out of nothing. And that's really the idea here. In that there's no pre-existing material that God uses as His starting point that He then molds and shapes and fashions into the created world. That cannot be the case because there's only one who is eternal. And that's God Himself. There cannot be another eternal. That is some pre-existing matter. So for God to create means He must create all things out of nothing, and therefore His work begins by creating matter, by creating the substance of this earth. and That's what we read about in these verses. In verse 2, we read of the earth without form. We read of darkness. We read of the waters. And the fact that this verse can speak of a, a formless earth and darkness and waters. Well, those things were not there beforehand. God created them. He was creating matter At the outset of creation. And He did that out of nothing, even as our catechism teaches us. Who of nothing made heaven and earth. So He creates this matter, and because it's without form, the idea is that it was all blended together as it were. And that means His second work then, after creating matter, is to start to form the creation. And that's what's taking place especially in days 1-3. through three. God is taking the earth that was without form and giving it form. Giving it shape. And He did that especially by dividing things. By separating things. That is, He, he took this blended material and started dividing it up. It's the language that's used again and again in the first three days of the creation. We can notice that. Verse 4, after God has created light, we read, and God saw the light that it was good, and God divided, He separated the light from the darkness. He's pulling things apart. Same thing with regard to God creating the firmament. Verse 6, and verse 6, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters so that there's waters above the firmament and waters below the firmament. And God does the same thing with the earth. That's verse 9. And God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. So that God is dividing, He's separating dry land from the water. And in this way, He's... Forming the creation. And really what He's doing is He's, he's building a habitat. Multiple habitats. He, he's building a home. And within that home, He's going to place His creatures. And that's the third part of His work. First, He creates matter. Second, He, he forms the creation, the world itself, creating these habitats. And then the third part of His work is to fill it with the creatures and that's what God is doing in days 4 through 6. And he does so following the pattern of the first 3 days of the week so that the first day and the fourth day correspond together, the second day and the fifth day, and then the third day and the sixth day. In the first day of the week God created light and separated it from the darkness. And on the fourth day, God places within that the various lights. He places the sun as the light to rule the day and the moon and the stars as the lights in the night. He's creating the luminaries, the light bearers. On day five, He's filling the habitats that He had made before. Day two. Day 2, we have the firmament, the sky, separated from the waters. And now on day 5, He puts the birds into the sky and He puts the fish into the waters, into the sea. And then the same idea in verse with day 3 and 6. Day 3, God causes the dry land to appear. He creates all the plant life. And then on day 6, He puts the animals upon the face of the earth, the land animals, so that there's a a pattern, there's a structure that God is following throughout the creation week. First, He's forming, and then He's filling. First, God creates a habitat, and then God creates the inhabitants. That was God's work of creation. And it was and it's on the basis of this passage that the Heidelberg Catechism says what it does, that our God of nothing made heaven and earth with all that is in them. And you believe that, right? That God created all things. In six days, just as he says he did here in Genesis chapter 1? It's an important question because there are many who deny this. This doctrine is under attack in the church world around us, especially through the false teaching of what is called theistic evolution or these days, is more often called evolutionary creationism. Evolutionary creationism. This is the teaching that affirms God is the Creator of all things, but that He used the mechanism of evolution to go about His creative work. In other words, it's the process of evolution that is the explanation for life and the diversity of life that we see in this world. But God was the one who initiated the process and who guided the process over the course of millions of years. That, in a nutshell, is the teaching of evolutionary creationism or theistic evolutionism. And really, this teaching is no different than how the wicked world explains the origins of this world and of life on this earth, the only difference is that theistic evolutionism is dressed up in church clothes. And sadly, welcomed then into the church. And indeed, there are many who have embraced this view. Even some Reformed and Presbyterian denominations affirm this teaching. And along with that, they invariably and really out of necessity reinterpret Genesis chapter 1. They would say, yes, Genesis 1 tells us who created all things and why God created all things, but they would then argue, Scripture is silent regarding how, when, and how long it took for God to create. They have different ways of reinterpreting Genesis 1 along these lines. To use one example, some would say, well, Genesis 1 is not history, it's poetry. I mean, look at the structure after all. Days 1, 2, and 3 align with days 4, 5, and 6. There's a, a pattern here. We're supposed to take this as poetry. It's just... Telling us that God created. It's not telling us how or when God created or how long it took Him. But over against that false teaching, we confess that Scripture does plainly tell us those things. Scripture does tell us how God created, when He created all things, and how long it took Him. It tells us first How? By the word of his mouth. Not by the mechanism of evolution. Not by guiding random mutations that conferred a selective advantage on certain species so that in a time of drought or some other condition like that, these species now were more fit to survive and thus propagated more upon the face of the earth. That's not how God created life and the diversity of life that we see. Scripture tells us plainly. It tells us when, for example, it says in Genesis 1, verse 3, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. He spoke. It was by the word of His mouth, which is to say, it was by our Savior Jesus Christ. All things are created by Him, and without Him, there is not anything made that was made. That's how God created in Scripture clearly teaches us that. And not only does Scripture teach us the how, but it teaches us the when. The when. Because Genesis 1, verse 1 begins, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the significance is that after Genesis 1, we're then introduced to these key figures. And we're told how long they live and how old they were when they had a child. And from that, we can then construct a a timeline. We can calculate backwards Based on these genealogies and the different ages given to people and when they had children, and we can determine when God created all things. Sometime, somewhere between six to ten thousand years ago, depending on how you do the math. But either way, this is a, a young earth that we live upon. Scripture does teach the when. But it teaches not only the how, not only the when, but also the how long tells us plainly. For six days, God created the heavens and the earth. And then on the seventh day, God rested. And these are normal 24-hour days because again and again in the Scripture account in Genesis 1, we are told that these days are marked by evening and morning. So it took God six days. And if we have doubts about whether That's the proper way to understand Genesis 1. Well, we can turn to the Spirit's own divine commentary on this passage. In Exodus 20, verse 11, for example, which bases the fourth commandment on this truth. For in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. God does tell us how, when, and how long. And regarding that whole notion of Genesis 1 just being poetry, it's simply not true. Because what's the great hallmark of Hebrew poetry? Not that it rhymes, but the parallelism. The parallelism that we see in the book of Psalms and in the, the book of Proverbs, where we have two statements side by side and the, the one explains the other. They're either really saying the same thing, but in slightly different words, or there's a, a contrast between the two. But there's a, there are parallel statements in Hebrew poetry and we see that in the, the books of poetry. But we do not find that in Genesis 1. There's no Hebrew parallelism here. This is not poetry. It's history. And it's meant to be read as history. And that too is clear from the passage itself. This passage contains the outstanding mark or characteristic of what we would call historical narrative. And to use the technical term, I'll explain it in a moment. This passage is loaded with what's called the wow consecutive. Wow with an A instead of an O. The wow consecutive. And you can see that when you read your Bibles, in that, with only two exceptions, every verse in Genesis chapter 1 begins with the word and. And this. And then this. And then this. And that's the language of history. First, this happens. And then after that, there's another thing that happens. And then after that, and that repeated use of the word and, especially in the Hebrew language and the form that it takes, is the marker of historical narrative teaching us this is meant to be read as history. This is telling us the facts about how God created, when He created, and how long it took Him. And therefore, it's on the the basis of God's Word, that we believe He is the Creator of all things, that He created all things in six 24 hour days by the Word of His mouth, and that He did so somewhere between six to 10,000 years ago. And all this is to say, He is the Father of creation. And for that, we praise Him. Again and again in Scripture, God is glorified on account of this work. We've sang some of the psalms that speak of this. We're going to sing another psalm after the sermon. Psalms of nature. Psalms in which the, the whole point is to praise God as the Creator for His work of making the heavens and the earth. And that's our take away. That's our application tonight. So that when we look at this created world around us, we fall down on our knees saying, praise God. Praise Him for this great work as we behold His handiwork in the world all around us. He's the Maker of heaven and earth. He's the Father of creation. But now He's Father in another sense too. He's not only the Father of creation, not only the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, but He's our gracious Father through adoption. And that's the other important truth that we're going to get to in just a moment. I have one more part as I turn a page. I see still in the first point, We just explained that God created the heavens and the earth. And now it's also worth making the point that this is indeed a matter of faith in God's Word. Which is to say, God's Word is the authority on this matter. So that when it comes to the doctrine of creation, we are not trying to prove this based on science or an appeal to the world around us. Certainly, there's value in studying the creation and being able to show that there's no sort of disconnect, no contradiction between what God reveals in general revelation and what God reveals in special revelation. And there's even some value in appealing to certain things that are revealed in creation to confirm our understanding of all things. But the reality is that We believe this on the basis of Scripture. Because God told us He created all things. And who is man to contradict God? Who is man who was not there in the beginning to tell the One who was there in the beginning, the only One who was there in the beginning, I know better than you how you created things, when you created things, and how long it took you. That's unbelief. We believe this on the basis of Scripture. And indeed, this is a matter of faith. Of faith. It's the whole point of this being a creed. I believe in God the Father, Almighty Maker of heaven and earth. We believe this by faith. And that's the teaching of Scripture itself in Hebrews 11, verse 3. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. And that means it's not because we are smarter. It's not because we're intellectually superior to the wicked world around us that We understand the truth concerning creation. But it's only because God has opened our eyes. Spiritually, it's only because God has given us the gift of faith. And that then is a matter for humility. And thankful praise to our God. So we believe this on the basis of God's Word. And now we can... Transition to the idea of God being our adoptive Father. He's the Father of creation. He's also our gracious Father. And that's where the Catechism goes next. What believest thou when thou sayest, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth? That the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, there's the first sense in which he's Father, who of nothing made heaven and earth with all that isn't in them, Who likewise upholds and governs the same by his eternal counsel and providence, there's the second sense in which he's Father, is, and now here's the third sense, for the sake of Christ, his Son, my God and my Father. That's our confession this evening that this Creator is my Father. It's important to note that not all men have the right to claim that. And that needs to be said because of another false teaching called the universal fatherhood of God. That is the teaching of some. That was a teaching of a scholar by the name of Adolf von Harnack. In his popular book, What is Christianity? He taught, and he's not the only one, but he's representative, he taught that because God is the Creator of all men, He is therefore the Father of all men. And he then used this to go on to teach a a universal brotherhood. That we're all brothers and sisters together, one big family, and that's true regardless of whether we're a Christian or a Jew or a Hindu or a Buddhist or a Muslim. There's a universal Father and therefore there's a universal brotherhood according to this false teaching. That is most certainly a false teaching. Because while it's true, God is the Creator of all things and the Father of the creation itself, and while it's also true that Scripture speaks of God as the Father of Adam as He was created, it does not follow that God is the Father of all men head for head. And He is not because of the fall into sin. Adam's willful, willful disobedience changed that. It affected the relationship that Adam had with his God so that rather than all men being the sons and daughters of Jehovah God, man by nature stands as the enemies of God. Rather than having this relationship of of peace and love and fellowship, there's enmity between man by nature and Jehovah God. So it's not true that God is the Father of all men. So how then can we make the confession that we do? That this God is my God and my Father because of the saving work of Jesus Christ. That's what the Catechism clearly teaches us. That the Eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and now skipping over the parathetical statement, is for the sake of Christ His Son, My God and My Father. Really, the catechism is emphasizing it. It it puts that phrase, for the sake of Christ His Son, before we even get to the, the most basic sentence. This God is My God and My Father. It starts with that this is only true for the sake of Christ and His saving work. The work whereby the eternal Son of our God came down into this created world. And not the created world as it was first created, but the created world after the fall of sin. The world under the curse. A world polluted by sin. That's the world into which the Father sent His Son. And having sent the Son, The Son then did what the first Adam failed to do. The Son lived a life of perfect obedience. He fulfilled all righteousness. More than that, He took upon Himself our sin and guilt and He paid the debt that we owe for our sins. And in that way, He earned the right for us to become the sons and daughters of God. We've been chosen as God's children in all eternity. That's Ephesians 1, verse 5. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will. But it was the saving work of Jesus Christ that procured the legal right for us to become God's children because we were enemies by nature. We were the children of wrath. Something has to change for us to become the sons and daughters of the Most High God. And that change takes place on the basis of Christ's work and that he, he paid the debt that we owe for our sins. And He lived a life of perfect obedience that's imputed to us by faith so that we are now righteous before this God. And it's on that basis that God then takes us into His family. He makes us His dear children so that we may make this beautiful confession of the Heidelberg Catechism that the Eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is for the sake of Christ His Son, my God and my Father. It's a privilege to say that. And that comes out even in how The writers of Scripture speak of this. No doubt this is the reason that John wrote what he did with a sense of amazement. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. What love! What a glorious work that that we who were sinners can now be called the sons of God. And not only are we called that, but we enjoy the the relationship. Because as a part of His adoptive work, God sends His Spirit into our hearts to make us His sons and daughters so that we cry out, Abba, Father. We speak to Him as Father. We can address Him in this way. And we can now rely on Him. Depend on Him. Look to Him for all that we stand in need of both physically and spiritually. And we can do so with the utmost confidence because this God is entirely trustworthy. And that's the truth that follows from the first two points. Because He is both the Almighty Creator and our adoptive Father, He is therefore our trustworthy God. And that's the point that the catechism Ends with having explained or at least stated the three senses in which God is Father outside of Himself. The catechism then makes application the last several lines. On whom I rely so entirely that I have no doubt but He will provide me with all things necessary for soul and body. And further, that He will make whatever evils He sends upon me in this valley of tears, turn out to My advantage, for He is able to do it, being Almighty God and willing, being a faithful Father. First, He's able because He is the Almighty God. It's not the case that our God is a Father who wants to give good gifts to His children, who wants to care and provide for them, but lacks the resources to do so. He he lacks the ability to bestow upon us the goods that He would like to do. That's not the case. Because He's the Almighty Creator. He is therefore able to give us all that we stand in need of. Because the very fact that He created all things means everything belongs to Him. It's His to dispose of as He wills. To distribute as He wills. And not only that, that the creation belongs to Him, but the very fact that He was able to create create all things speaks to His power. He is God the Father Almighty, we confess in the Apostles' Creed. He has the power to do whatsoever He pleases. There is nothing too hard for our God. Therefore, He's able... To care for us. And that makes Him trustworthy. But He's trustworthy not only because of His ability, but also because of His willingness. And that's what the other other part of it that the catechism calls our attention to. For He is able to do it, being Almighty God, and willing, being a faithful Father. So that our God is not like some tyrant, some wicked ruler over a people who has endless resources, who could easily provide for the people but refuses to do so on account of his selfishness. That's not our God. But He's our Father who loves us, who cares for us, and is therefore willing to open His hands wide. To give us what we stand in need of. And if we have any doubt about His willingness, we look back to our Savior and to the truth of Romans 8, verse 32. He that spared not His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? It's because He is both the Almighty Creator and our adoptive Father. That we can therefore trust him. And indeed he's shown himself to be trustworthy. And that he has provided for us. Simply by creating this world. Remember what we were saying in the first point, he he built us a home As you walk through those days of the creation week, we could go through each one of them. We're only going to mention a couple of examples. But in each day, He's he's making a a home, a habitat that's fit, not just for the creatures in general, but for for man, the pinnacle of His creation. So that when God creates water, that material, He's giving us what we stand in need of to drink when He creates the firmament. He's giving us the air that we need to breathe. When He gives us, when He creates the the plants and the animals, He's giving us food to eat. He's, He's giving us everything that we stand in need of. And He has indeed given it to us to be used by His people. That's the point being made in Genesis 1, verse 29. And God said. Behold, I have given you, that is man, every herb bearing seed which is upon the face of the earth, and every tree in which is the fruit of a tree yielding seed. To you it shall be for meat. God is saying, I made this for you. Yes, I made it ultimately for my own glory, but my name will be glorified in that I am now providing for you, my people. God has cared for us. He's shown Himself to be trustworthy. And that's true not only because He provides for us, but He also protects us. Because the reality is that we live in a fallen world. We live in the creation that's been made subject to the curse so that there are now evils that come upon us. Catechism recognizes that when it says what it does, it speaks of the fact that He will make whatever evils He sends upon me in this valley of tears turn out to my advantage. But notice that language, the valley of tears. When it speaks of a valley, it's talking about our lives and it's comparing them to a pilgrimage. The path that we must walk in. That path is through the valley. A valley of tears. That is, there are so many obstacles, so many hurdles, trials, and struggles that come upon us that are the occasion for tears. When we're in the valley, we feel hemmed in. As though we're in a straight, a tight spot. We're, we're being squeezed. And because of the dangers, we're often afraid, but the catechism is teaching us is that because we have this Almighty God as our Father, we need not fear. As the catechism teaches us, He will make whatever evils He sends upon me in this valley of tears turn out to my advantage. And better than that language is the fact that He's in control of them. It says that He sends upon me. They're coming from His hand. He's the Almighty Creator. He's the One in control of all things. He's the One that directs them so that He prevents many evils from coming upon us. And as for the ones that He does send upon us, well, then we remember He's Father. And then He's got a good and loving purpose. No good and loving Father removes every hardship and obstacle from His children. No good and loving father gives to his child every last thing he or she could ever want. That's spoiling a child. That's not good for the child. And so it is with our Father. He does send evils upon us, but always for our good. He turns them, He makes them serve our salvation. And all this is to say, he is entirely trustworthy. So do you trust him? Do I? The second half of Lord's Day Nine is a beautiful profession of faith, and it's so personal. Notice that on whom I rely so entirely that I have no doubt, but that He will provide me with all things necessary for soul and body. And further, He will make whatever evils He sends upon me in this valley of tears turn out to my advantage. This is a personal confession of faith. Can we make this confession from the heart tonight? Or are we looking elsewhere? Are we trusting in ourselves or in some creature or in some possession? May God bless His Word tonight by strengthening in our faith so that we look to this God as we walk as pilgrims in this valley and with trusting hearts confess that He is for the sake of Christ His Son, my God, and my Father. Amen. Our Father in Heaven, what a privilege it is to call Thee by that name. For Thou art the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. The Omnipotent One who spoke and thereby called into existence the heavens and the earth. What wondrous power and what a comforting truth to know that Thou art also our Father for Jesus' sake. Help us to trust Thee, strengthen our faith, as we walk through this valley of tears. Hear this prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen.